So this is maybe 2007. It's a summer evening. I'm still in college. Um, I was kind of a night owl then. And so I was... This year five or six? This is year five. Okay. <laughs> Literally. No, this would be probably year five. Okay. And it's summer, and I'm reading my first ever Cormac McCarthy novel. Okay. It's maybe 11.30, pushing midnight, you know, but I'm on that. I'm a college kid. I'm on that schedule. I'm just out on my front porch uh, reading. It's a nice summer night. I like to do that. You're in Kansas. I'm in Manhattan, Kansas at Kansas State, and... I'm t- I'm at the part where have you, you've seen the movie Peter, right? Yes. Okay. So when Llewellyn Moss is has the money he found and he's on the run from the cartel people, it's that very exciting part of the chase that I'm reading. At the moment, there's a little old beat up tiny pickup truck, maybe off to my right, 30 feet away. And I kid you not, this a flashlight comes up and shines from the cab of the truck into my face as I'm reading this part of Llewellyn running away from the cartel people. And I'm just, I'm like, what, what's going on? This is, you know, I'm, I'm already kind of amped from the, from the excitement of the book. And then this thing's shining the spotlight in my face. It come, the truck comes up parallel to me shines a light again windows rolled up but just shines a light and yeah. then speeds off okay and that, that's it that's the story <laughs> nothing came of it nothing it was just the weirdest thing it, it just coincided with a very similar thing going on in no country for old men and then you know nothing things got very cormac mccarthy for you in real life it was <laughs> paralleling and i was like well what's gonna I, I, and you, I don't think you didn't finish that book, did you? No, I finished that book. Is that the only one? I mean, we're going to get into it in this episode, but. No, I read half of Blood Meridian because I was using it for, and I, I loved the first half. I just was using it for a paper and I never got back around to it. The paper became due before. What kind of neighborhood were you in in the, in the Kansas days in the 2000s? College it's neighborhood. It was. Common occurrence? No. It was weird. And it's not that good of a story on its own. It's just like a weird, like some things in certain like lit fic type books, there's no real, just a thing that happens. I think to make it a true Cormac McCarthy, you would have to describe the plants and sort of the sound of nature and just get into Well, I'm not as poetic as him. Uh, Yes, neither am I, but uh, yeah, I'm always, learning more about nature i feel like from cormac mccarthy than I'm, I'm used to learning from authors so uh matt I, I like the story you were a little nervous about the story i i was gonna say let's just get in this week just get into the serious business of literature uh preparing for this week i put on my literary theory cap from the mid-2000s i was thinking about those days when i was writing papers on the Old Man in the Sea, the feminist critique of The Old Man in the Sea. I felt like that was my strongest paper. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I feel like I got some theories this week, so. Okay, good. And on that well, note, oh, go ahead. 
No, I was just, uh, I didn't know if you wanted me to just jump in whenever or if you wanted to introduce me. So, um, but I, I was going to say 2007. I mean, that was, that's around the time I started reading Cormac McCarthy as well. And it was just that Cormac McCarthy moment. And it was a really weird thing to happen because, I mean, for me, it was actually like just right ahead of when all that stuff started happening. So, I mean, for those people who may be too young to remember, uh, he um, published The Road and went on Oprah. And, you know, McCarthy is not like a recluse. He's not Pynchon or um, J.D. Salinger, but he is really selective about where and when he shows up in the press. And it was odd to go on what at the time was like the biggest show in the world, which is Oprah Winfrey. And so it was part of her book club. And I had just, you know, I was turned on to Cormac McCarthy through Harold Bloom's book, How to Read and Why, which has a chapter on him in there on, on Blood Meridian. So of course I read Blood Meridian. And it was not long after that, that he kind of exploded because it wasn't just that, it was um, the No Country for Old Men movie. And then, like, I feel like 90% of writers would have tried to publish something pretty soon after that to uh, capitalize. And he just went silent for like 16 years. Until now. Yeah. <laughs> Until last, so. yeah, last winter. Uh, the voice you're hearing is our special guest. Our, I feel like he's going to guide us uh, this week. And that is the voice of the host of the podcast, The Force of Symbols. That's Aldous Asterian um, yeah. joining us this week. Um, that's a good intro because I wanted my first question kind of for everybody is how how did you hear about Cormac McCarthy and kind of like what was your first experience reading him? Matt, you kind of touched on it. Aldous, you kind of touched on it. I was kind of similar in that vein, like 2006. I remember I was working at the student union and they had like a retail bookstore and i was might have been on the clock and i just went in there and i just picked up the road and i read probably 30 pages and it's kind of funny i feel like for like serious cormac mccarthy fans i would just, i kind of have the feeling that the road is not like it's cormac mccarthy jr is that kind of there's other like blood meridian is his biggest work sutry which we're going to be talking about this week might be is like uh, you know, like the, I don't want to say like the hipster favor, but like kind of the secondary one. So yeah. I, oh, go ahead. I, the, the, you know, Blood Meridian is the one that has like the cults around it. Um, and yeah, maybe some people think uh, the road is McCarthy light because uh, it's like short and relatively simply uh, written in the prose style and and it was very popular so mm -hmm. it has all those things against it now I read it and liked it um but I will be soon rereading it so I'm I'm like I will be reevaluating you know um and I have to say that uh to be honest I was despite like Harold Bloom's strong recommendation and he actually like hyped up the violence of Blood Meridian which I mean earned it um but uh i i was a little bit uh slow to convert to the cult of cormac mccarthy because although i was definitely impressed with blood meridian on a first reading i 
uh, I kind of wondered, you know, um, and I had read like Burroughs and Joyce and stuff before that, you know, so I was, I, I definitely like encountered some extreme stuff, but um, I, I only sporadically read him through the, throughout the years, but you know, I'm, I'm drunk on the Kool-Aid today, so <laughs> I'm converted, but I still haven't read the border trilogy or his first one, the orchard keeper. Okay. Um, so this is a reread Sutri. Um, and I, I read that one for the first time a few years ago on audiobook. I was happy to see it in the library and I, I listened to it while I was driving around for my job at the time. And, you know, audiobooks, I would probably say sometimes my, my, uh, what I absorb from an audiobook is maybe like 70% of what it is in just reading because, uh, it's just the nature of it. You get distracted and you're doing other things. But um, I, I read it uh, for the first time in paper form and uh, the reread, uh, I just, I was initially very impressed with the language and uh, some of the humor, which we got to talk about that because I think it's really funny and he's not known for that. So it was actually kind of a surprise. And yeah, I would have to say I'm probably one of the hipsters who say that Suchery is the best, <laughs> but um, I I wouldn't fault anybody. Like Aaron Gwynn on Twitter, who's like a huge McCarthy guy, um, he puts Blood Meridian number one and Suchery two, and that's fine. That's perfectly respectable. I think they're both masterpieces, and uh, you know they're they're very different. I would say Suchery is his comic vision and blood meridian i don't know if it's a right to call it a tragedy maybe a, a blood-soaked epic but um you know there are two distinct visions in in terms of what he's trying to do i i so after the road i read blood meridian i was going through i have a notebook of i keep all the books i read i kind of jot them down in order did blood meridian and then i did all the pretty horses and then i would guess it's been 10 years since i read all the pretty horses uh, I have the rest of the Border Trilogy. I think I have some of the other stuff. I got the, the newest ones for Christmas. I don't know if I like my taste change or I, I just like Blood Meridian is just, a, it's a lot. And I, I would probably need to reread it to kind of, it's, it kind of punches you in the mouth and you're like, okay, this it's, I, I don't feel like it's imitated or if, if, if an author tries, it would probably be ridiculed because it's a very tough um form and sort of everything about it would be tough to like imitate so you don't really see books like blood meridian much um it would be so easy to do some try to do something like that and wind up with something kind of campy and ridiculous yeah. and mccarthy's detractors would actually say it already is <laughs> yeah um i i read because and this was another thing that made, gave me some reservations maybe i'm too you know i can be too influenced by criticism sometimes um but there was a book i don't know if you guys have ever heard of this book uh a reader's manifesto by br myers are you familiar with that i'm not um i recommend it because it's like it's it's a classic um literary polemic and it's pretty short and pretty witty um and he he kind of uh, accuses a lot of lauded contemporary writers of being pretentious and he sort of like goes through their style and uh so he deals with uh like paul oster and don delillo and cormac mccarthy and even at the time the mccarthy chapter was was uh the one that i had the most reservations uh about and i went back and reread it recently and i think he 
sort of cherry picks and um, doesn't really take McCarthy in, in the context, but like he has this, uh, he kind of, he, he was going to call the book Gorgons in the Pool, which is like a quote from All the Pretty Horses when, <laughs> which I haven't read, but uh, he, there's like a description of the the cowboys and they're hungover and McCarthy goes on one of his sort of lyrical jags about how they were like, you know, it, it was like, something laughing in the heart of being like a gorgon in an autumn pool and he was just kind of like this what does this mean this is sort of a really pretentious thing that doesn't mean anything and you know i sometimes you read stuff like that at mccarthy and you're just it's just like what is this um but i've done enough reading and rereading of mccarthy by this point to kind of give him the benefit of the doubt and I, usually when i go back through and think about things i find uh, some reasons that 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 kind of stuff is there but he he can definitely go on the deep end and i know that you know you guys have just read Sutri that you've found some stuff like that too <laughs> well i think he pulls it off yeah i'm actually wondering i wonder if he's more easy easier to parody rather than imitate you know you kind of yeah. put one at him and if you take things out of context you can get some good jabs in polemically but to pull off and write something similar, I think would be, I don't, I don't know if anybody could really do it. Yeah. No. Um, Matt, so first impressions are, are kind of what were you expecting going into Sutri? Um, kind of McCarthy's, you know, one of his top two or, you know, if you want to put another book up there. Uh, what were you expecting? Kind of what was your first impression of the book? I kind of, I think I was kind of expecting what it was okay. very dense and lyrical. And I kind of knew what it was about, you know, kind of the, what whatever you call a, a picaresque kind of the rougher edges of society. And you kind of go on a, a journey and meet all the, the different people. It gets compared to Joyce a lot. And I actually wanted to ask you uh, all this. If, is that because I haven't read Ulysses and is that, apt do you know or is that kind of because he travels from place to place like i didn't notice any like i don't know there there was no like Circe or yeah laptops or whatever well it? yeah i think i agree and the influence of joyce is there it's not overwhelming i don't think any one writer influence is overwhelming um you know there's I mean, there's, of course, his his like lyrical flights, which are similar to Joyce, but actually throughout McCarthy's uh, writing career, he's more frequently been compared to Faulkner on that front. Part of it is being a Southern writer. Um, and I, I can't actually speak to that because I'm actually not real well read in Faulkner. I've read As I Lay Dying and uh, some of the, you know, short stories that get anthologized a lot. Um, but I definitely hear, you know, Joycean rhythms in the description um there's there's like a there, so there's an yeah you mentioned circe and like that episode in ulysses is like it's uh the night town where they go and visit the brothels and it becomes very hallucinatory and yeah that kind of underworld element um is it's that such is very reminiscent of that and of course we'll get into that because it is the whole it's the whole book is kind of like a, a an underworld journey in a way um so yeah i definitely i get joyce but i also get like twain and actually like a it's very elusive 
you got to be careful, but all these references are there in a way it's like, and, and on my reread, um, cause I had been thinking of McCarthy as a Southern writer. This is like the sort of the culmination of his Southern period. He's still writing about Knoxville where he's from. And then after this, he goes West and starts to study old Western history so that he can write blood Meridian. He gets some money, a little bit of money to do this. And he goes to, uh, West Texas and New Mexico, where he's been ever since. So he kind of becomes a Western writer. Um, but as I was reading this last time, I was surprised at how much of like New England, American Renaissance, um, transcendentalist stuff is in there. Whitman, Emerson, Thoreau, obviously such suchery is kind of like in retreat from society, which you can kind of see as like a Walden type of uh you know uh excursion mm. but anyway yeah but joyce is there and you know the 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 prostitute that he kind of shacks up with for a while near the end is named joyce so he's very arch about these things and, and he, <laughs> he he will reference very specifically and i missed that's right that's the cersei thing and they, they he goes to the brothel with reese so yeah that's a good point i missed that i missed that too i did catch that his mom's name is grace yeah. Son of Grace. And I was like, that on the nose a little bit too much. Thank you, because some of the, the references I'm not getting. So when you say I'm the son of grace, I was like, okay, let me underline that. Let me catch that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh I, I'm glad you mentioned like underworld, because I guess you could describe this book as about the fringes of society and like the, the people that inhabit it, but it feels very much like a complete when it takes place, 1951. Everyone in this book seems like I was, I was trying to think of like, no one in this book has a mortgage. This isn't 1950s America where you're, you're buying a car, you're getting a house right after the war. That sort of, this is like a completely, this is sort of segregated America. This is not the America that would be, you know, that's sort of like you would put on the postcard and send, you know, overseas. So it, it definitely felt like the underworld or underbelly of like, and it's sort of like how he describes things. It feels like, rusted out cars, people living in shacks, you make your, your kind of your, your life on the river, your, your, you know, all these kind of things. And it feels very much it. There's some like fantasy books I've read where it's like, there's the real London and then there's like the underground London. And there's all these like separate sort of versions of Knoxville or whatever, or America. And that's very much what this book felt like. I don't know if any of you kind of felt that, that same way or. Yeah. Well, and our the main our main character like puts himself there purposely. Like he's rejecting the you're he comes from a well-to-do family and he's kind of rejected that world and he's purposely living in kind of the underbelly of Knoxville. Absolutely. It is like an underworld journey that, that it's like it's a self-undertaken uh exile and rejection of I, I'm glad, Peter, that you you brought up the time period because it's easy to forget while you're reading this that um, so we're we're six years on from the end of World War Two and we're we're actually um, like we're entering in uh, despite the fact that America almost goes immediately into Cold War Cold War and like into you know famously paranoid time but like economically um, things like expand from there and it's one of the most prosperous times you know 50s and 60s and it's like the peak of american optimism in terms of 
you know, technology is going to make everything better and the economy is going to expand, you know, the boomers, you know, this is where the boomers come uh, out and, you know, uh, Satri is, is not uh, booming. He's, he's a doomer. He's not a boomer. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, I, that was kind of like my, what I was like trying to get the angle on the book, I guess. I kept coming back to what I was reading and what, where, you know, this is a real time and real place. And I kept coming back to that. It's like a very interesting way of looking at the book. Like I said at the beginning, I was trying to put on my literary theory. I was like, I would write a paper about America and, you know, what it was like, what it was kind of promoted as versus, you know, this, I, this felt real. I mean, this wasn't like a, a completely fabricated, made up life that these characters lived. So I, I just thought that was a very interesting kind of look at the novel. I don't know. So. I have a. I want to read a, a brief little passage that uh, describes the the world that uh, Suchri is in, and I, it's near the end. And I don't want to give the context for it because then we'd have to like talk about the ending, which mm -hmm. we may want to do. But let's say we, we yeah, yeah. definitely want to save it for later. But uh, uh, he squandered several ensuing years in the company of thieves, derelicts, miscreants, pariahs, poltroons, spalpeens, curmudgeons, clotpaws, murderers, gamblers, bods, whores, trolls, brigands, topers, tosspots, sots, and archsots, lobcocks, smell smocks, runagates, rakes, and other assorted and felonious debauchees. I, I highlighted that. So it's almost like <laughs> it encapsulates all the characters. Uh, I, I didn't do it very well, but if you want to like imagine Foghorn Leghorn's voice saying that, <laughs> I think that's really the best way to hear it. It also seemed we've talked about this kind of phrase on this podcast before, but like the, the very American concept of the confidence man who gains your confidence and then swindles you. It feels like it's an undercurrent of a lot of maybe the, the characters in this book of um, he encounters people that are trying to outside the sort of normal means of the economy make a living and then it's sort of disastrous for like it's, it's not not a reliable way of living and so it's, yeah so and there's so, not a lot of oh go ahead no you go ahead i was saying the the confidence man thing there's no like suave smooth confidence man men here there's Her gene harrogate who is one of the funnier characters i've read about in a while and he's, you know, he's always got a scheme or something up his sleeve. Yeah. It never go well. The Moonlight Melon Mounter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a, yeah, a romancer of uh, watermelons. I was going to ask you, when you had heard of stuff about this book before, had you heard about the watermelons? No. no. Okay, good. <laughs> so that, that was I had to, I had to stop and kind of go back. I was like, did he do what I, okay, okay. Because... Yeah. And I wrote, and we kind of briefly touched on this. This was like, I hadn't realized McCarthy as like a kind of a humorist or a funny writer, but this book is very fun. Like Gene is, funny. I, in 10 years, I might remember Gene's story more than Sutri's story in a weird way. Oh, Just the, as, thing, the thing with the bats, his little scheme. Oh, I love that part. For, it's just so grotesquely funny. Like the caves, like where you yeah. like, that's <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, Gene gathers around him a lot of the tropes of the literary grotesque as well. He's associated with like being underground lizards and bats and all these like bizarre creatures. He's almost yeah. a, you know, like he, he's almost, I mean, this is a 
kind of stock McCarthy character too, as like someone who is just this side of being human. I mean, I think Harrogate is maybe a little more human than even some of the other uh, McCarthy figures from his early books, like uh, uh, Outer Dark. I mean, there's a character named Culla in there, which is like, he's... Uh, some of, some of the McCarthy characters are like ciphers, you know, and we actually get like more richly drawn characters in this book um, and a greater interiority. Like Sutri, we get more of his mind and his thoughts than almost anybody in McCarthy. And that's an, in addition to the humor, that's another surprising thing about this is how deeply rendered um, the main character is. Um, I know this book is sort of semi-autobiographical. It, do you know if like what parts of his life because he he went to tennessee he's kind of from tennessee that is there has any any done any interviews where he kind of describes how much of this is him or is it just loose i like, don't you can kind yeah. of the dots a little bit but i don't know i think a lot of that is speculation um people will say that and some other people will kind of dispute um how like literally autobiographical it is but it definitely feels very personal um he spent um i mean at least 17 years writing this book uh he was publishing other books he started writing in the early 60s he was publishing other books of course in the meantime mm -hmm. and uh you know that's as long as james joyce took to write finnegan's wake it's a very long gestation and but it also feels like a book that someone was preparing their entire life to write through observation of life, their own experiences, they're absorbing the language of, of the people that they're around. Uh, it does feel like a kind of statement of the experience that McCarthy has had, whether he ever lived like Suchery or not. Um, and maybe we should say a little bit of setting, like we talked about, like when it is set, it's in Tennessee, 1951. Um, Suchery, Cornelius Suchery, who is uh, of a prominent family. His father is a lawyer, um, which I think is uh, apt because he seems to be in, in sort of revolt against society, which is best symbolized by the law. And his father wanted him to have like a, you know, a good upstanding career. And he very well could have had that, um, but chose to live on a houseboat on the Tennessee river and spend his time drinking among, you know, yeah, all that list of people that, um, that I, I read out earlier. And, um, he's, he's been, it, I think it encompasses about like three years. That was my estimation, something like that, give or take. And he's been on the river two years. Now these facts that just enumerated take us about half of the novel to assemble, um, McCarthy doesn't hold your hand. There's no info dumps in Cormac McCarthy. There's no setting up. We're in 1951. It's Knoxville. Like it takes a long time to gather some basic information. And there's some information that we never actually get. Like I was going to ask you guys, how old do you think Suchery is? Because I don't think it's ever said. That's a good question. Cause I was trying to, I was thinking about how old Gene was. And I was actually going to say like, in my head, I was like, if he, the time made up a little bit, I, I would guess Gene would end up in the Vietnam War just because that would be like Gene's life. But Suchery, Gene is is barely an adult, like yeah. when he goes to the workhouse in the beginning. Um, so is it, 
I don't get the sense that he's a like he was in the war. I am I, I you know this is my I've only read it once, but I I don't get that sense. So I I don't I don't I quite know. Twenty four twenty seven is kind of how I. Yeah, I was thinking early older than Gene, and I want to. How old? How old do you think he is? I don't know. I mean, I could definitely see late twenties. He's got it. He he. You would think he would needs to be young enough that he avoided service in World War II because we're like six years on. But it could have been his family connections that got him out of that. It's funny how we're in the shadow of that, but it's not, it doesn't really come up partially because he's among people who were like so much bottom dwellers that they're not even like eligible for service. Yeah. Like these are bums yeah. <laughs> and, and like men who, who are like hermits and stuff like that, you know, like goat men and garbage men. And McCarthy loves these type of guys, these like tinkers and, and rag men who live on very much on the margins of society. Yeah, I, that's a good question. I was about, about his family. I was actually, I actually liked quite a bit how you came to learn about him. Like there's, there's a passage near the kind of like the three quarters mark. You learn about like he went to church quite a bit. He get, he like meets up with some of his family. You're totally right. There's no info dump. You're not like, you kind of have to pay attention to the small details about, um, but I I enjoy that you got a little bit of a backstory or a little bit of a, if you cut the details a little bit, you could be like, oh, okay, that um, there's a powerful scene where he, he learns about the death of his son. And so you're kind of piecing yeah. together. Um, he was married. And, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. one of the themes I, I was kind of looking for is like the, the idea of home because it, it feels very much like, he lives here, but it doesn't feel like home. And he he often he sometimes leaves Knoxville. And it's this idea of a lot of the, the characters are maybe stuck in in just a in their current, you know, where they live and where they dwell, and they kind of make the a home of it, but it's not home in the traditional sense, which I kind of feel like Sutri is maybe that's that's something he's thinking about a lot in, in many ways. So yeah, I mean he uh He's living on the outskirts of, of Knoxville. So he's like, he's in a way, like we gather that he's in a revolt against his, his, you know, the, the, the kind of worldview represented by his father, but we don't know any specifics about like, there's no scene where that he like argues with him and storms out or anything like that. We just don't know like what kind of is driving Sutri. Um, but what he also doesn't do is just leave Knoxville. Like, um, I mean, till later yeah. but um and and in, in some ways this is another joycean aspect is i think that there there are elements of like stephen dedalus i don't know if you guys have read we, we talked about ulysses but i don't know if you read portrait of the artist yeah. um you guys did do dubliners uh on your show um but you know stephen is is also in revolt uh, against the 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 norms and values of the the world that he came from but Stephen has his art, you know, he he becomes a priest of the imagination. He has something else to devote himself to. And it doesn't seem like Sutri does. I mean, he's a fisherman. That's important. But he also seems to be kind of like very erratic about that. Like he does, he, he sells a fish every once in a while. He's not good at it. He's only been doing it for two years. Um, but yeah. 
Yeah, I got. That's funny you mentioned that. He, yeah, a fisherman and not a. That's sort of how he makes his money, but it's it does. Yeah, it doesn't feel very regular, and it doesn't feel like he has a set schedule about what. No, he's it's kind of a. Well, so I want to run something by you guys because this is after the fact. I was kind of thinking about it, piecing it together, and I'm wondering if I'm on the right trail. This is my, my lit lit theory, Peter. Right. Peter. So he's. Like you guys, I kept waiting for, he's clearly rejected his family. There's a scene where his uncle comes and tells him to go visit his family and he, Satri just flat out refuses. At one point he gets sent some money. Somebody died and he gets sent some money and a note. And he very like poignantly takes the money, doesn't even read the note, crumples it up. Uh, so I kept waiting as I was reading it. It's like, okay, what happened with him and his parents? Like what's the big dramatic moment? And then it's like, okay, I don't think we're going to get it. But then looking back, I don't know that there was one. Hmm. I think he is just a young, young-ish, mid to late twenties, uh, middle-class art, art kind of sensitive artistic person who is purposefully rejecting the world he comes from. And he's purposely putting himself into this kind of lower order of things. I guess it, it's a purgatory in a way like purgatory of the spirit or something like that he's purposely sinking himself into that realm as a rejection of the world but he's also he's not he handles it kind of the way a sensitive young man would he's not um he can be charming but he can also be prickly uh you know like it, it's it's Yes, he he's definitely he's definitely immersing himself in in uh it's it's like a path of uh so I ha I have some things worked out about the symbol of this book and I don't know if you want to get into don't that. No, how would I it has to, it, ha it has to you know my obsession right it has to do with this kind of thing and yes he's in revolt against um the normie world I guess we should say um, but his problems, I think, run deeper than that, actually. Um, the the first chapter, the, the prologue, um, that, you know, that crazy prologue that we get at the very beginning quotes Hamlet, the rest is silence. And I think that's another good analog, too, to Sutri's character is Hamlet. It's more, and we spend most of Hamlet, like, Hamlet's in, like, a, a, a basic, like, Jacobian revenge plot, but he can't do it because he's more of a philosopher and a melancholic and that's kind of what Sutri is like too um he he's he has existential problems uh in addition to the literal ones of all this death that keep happening around him with his son dying and he, you know he's um he's fled from the family life um which may be too much for him perhaps because maybe because he is in his like early 20s and he's just not ready for that, you know? Um, and maybe he's driven by the guilt uh, of, of abandoning his, his, uh, his family there. Like he goes, so he goes to the funeral, but he's not, I mean, his, his wife's mother comes out to meet him and just starts like wailing on him and they do not let him uh, attend the funeral except at a distance. And then, when everybody leaves he goes with the uh workmen who are burying his son and helps them um and 
I talked about this on my podcast, but when my grandfather died not that long ago, my family, um, we didn't dig the grave, but we, um, we threw the dirt on with shovels after. And uh, it was probably one of the more profound experiences of my life. Um, and of course, in the book, I thought again of Hamlet with the graveyard scene in the scene too. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I, it first was, they were like, okay, they they handed when, after we buried and have the service for my grandfather, uh, they handed out shovels to the, the like adult males and we started pouring dirt on. And then like, it's a, my family's Mormon. So there's like 50 million kids at the funeral. Right. Yeah. And um, the kids kept coming up and like kind of getting in the way. And at first people were like, you know, hey, let let them do their work. And then once we got a little bit of dirt on there, they were like, okay, let the kids play in the dirt. Um, let them help. Um, and that whole thing, and it was great. Yeah. Uh, the way like the whole community came together. It was like one of the most beautiful things I've experienced. Anyway, that's, a, I didn't mean to digress there, but uh, these are the kind of things uh, I, I think of. Um, but yeah, so I think Suchery is, is driven by deeper, um, a deeper kind of questioning of what the world is and what it's supposed to be. And he voluntarily puts himself in exile and um, dire circumstances because of this. And as far as the symbolism, we have the river, which I don't think is the like, um, like Twain's Mississippi. It's not really the symbolism of the river as like a journey it, in a way. I mean, that's there, but it's more like the river sticks, you know, like the river of hell. And um, it's, he calls it, the narrator calls it a cloaca maxima at, at one point early on. And the cloaca maxima was uh, Rome's sewer. And uh, it was built early on before the aqueducts. And so, but it was like this open sewers, you know. Um, and we, all the description that we get throughout this book, specifically of the rivers, like, it's like this thing is like, that is collecting all of the city's trash and detritus and cast off things, you know, things and people that it sort of casts off and it's collecting all this you know, dirt and filth and waste. And that's what Suchery is sort of journeying through. But, you know, you remember a, a sewer is a filthy thing, but its aim is to clean. And uh, the, the word cloaca actually, uh, which means sewer, but it also etymologically gives us our word clean. And so it has that kind of paradoxical meaning. And I think this is essential to Suchery that um, he is not taking the like high road of a trying to reach god through church he's trying to reach god through uh i mean he may not believe in god that's kind of an open question there's an open question about cormac mccarthy actually um what his spirituality is he's talked about as a gnostic a lot he may be an atheist but he definitely takes these things he grew up a catholic in the south clearly as suchery is um there's that scene where he goes gets goes to sleep in the church and the priest comes to tell him you know this is not a place to sleep and he says well seems like a great place to sleep actually but he tells him that it's he says well it's god's house and he says no it's not god's house um and we don't know why Suchery says that is it because he doesn't believe in god or he doesn't believe in the church or or when what god is where he's been yeah the, that's interesting the sewer so maybe he's 
ultimately cleansing himself through the the putrefaction or being amongst the the detrius and the yeah the filth of yeah that that's how i see it yeah you make a good point because the river is not like america the beautiful and it's you know nature it's it's grimy it's the, the interaction between nature and humans in this book is very interesting. Like a lot of nature, like over, like seemingly overgrows, you know, maybe old factories or abandoned cars. And there's a lot of imagery of that. And sort of, I don't know if you guys had any theories or thoughts on sort of the idea of nature versus man and, and sort of is, is McCarthy sort of seems to be more nature and, and sort of the, the power of nature versus kind of man and his is maybe his faults and kind of how he wrecks things. It's kind of the, well, the sense I got from the book. Well, but. certainly one of Suchery's like visionary experiences happened because he goes out into nature, that chapter where he goes into the mountains, right? And mm-hmm. uh, has is like he went, he goes into the mountains and trips, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> he hasn't eaten and it, it does mention that he ate some mushrooms. It doesn't describe them, but kind of seems like he ate the 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 right ones to have that experience. Um but McCarthy's like skeptical about industrial progress throughout his books and yeah, kind of highlighting the uh the waste that the city produces and these like old junked cars and stuff like that is uh is is part of that um i mean it's like an occasion for comedy too like uh especially with harrogate because harrogate goes and pesters that junk man and like builds that uh his little boat out of the two car cards yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, which it, it points to something about harrogate that i think should be noted like he's this ridiculous clown and um you know i did these episodes on my podcast about fools and most, for the most part, and if I had to do it over, I wish I would have included Harrogate in there, but because he's a great fool, mostly in the negative sense. Um, but sometimes I do think there's a bit of the positive aspect of the fool in Harrogate because he's he's so confident. He has no res- there's no resistance in him to to any of his ideas. He's as soon as he comes up with a scheme, he's 100 percent convinced it's going to work. Um, and from the most part, we can see a mile away how this is going to backfire on him, but not always. Like everybody thinks that the, his little car hood boat is like a death trap, but it doesn't sink, does it? Yeah. <laughs> and his phone thing works for a bit. He's able to yeah. get money from it. Yeah, right. Is that he'd be on a he'd be a grind set guy on Twitter? Oh, it's, yes, absolutely. <laughs> he would he would be yeah he would be giving people advice on on how to live for sure. <laughs> Without knowing what he's talking about at all. Uh, I had a quote here, and it kind of goes to maybe Sutri's view on on the humanity or, or life. And it says, but there's no absolutes in human misery, and things can things can always get worse. Only Sutri didn't say so. And I was like, God, that's really depressing. I liked, I really liked that like, yeah. line, but I'm like, that's a bleak way of and it, I mean it's probably true in a lot of ways and you you think you're at rock bottom and it can maybe get worse but that line stuck out to me as a maybe a viewpoint i i, I don't know like how you can attribute it to mccarthy or is it just maybe such as you know his own character or whatnot um 
because everything like human misery and things can always get worse. I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, it's, that's very Cormac McCarthy. I mean, he, there are statements throughout his work somewhat like that. And, um, his latest two books kind of explore some, some bleak notions that just like that, especially through the character, Alicia Western, um, who is a, you know, a, a genius mathematician, but also a schizophrenic who's like kind of tormented or bemused by a uh, carny dwarf called the Thalidomide Kid. That's like her her hallucination, but maybe he's a hallucination or maybe he's a um, uh, sort of, I don't know what you would call him there's there's some of the Gnostic ideas of like the archons come up in that book. And one of the things that might be happening with the thalidomide kid is that he's like protecting her from seeing things that are even worse out there. Um, there's a line in one of, in Sutri's last hallucination when he appears to be dying of um, typhoid at the end. And he sort of comes back having some, some visions and he says, I think he's kind of still in his hallucinatory state. He says, you would not believe what watches. And uh, there's like this sort of, you know, cosmic kind of horror thing happening in McCarthy sometimes too. Uh, just makes him oddly akin to Lovecraft actually, where it's like, if you go poking your head out into the depths of the universe, like that flammarion painting with a guy i don't know if you guys have seen that the guy's like sticking his head out of the bubble that's like the dome of the um, stars you know um you know once you get out there there are like lovecraft demons waiting to bite your head off you know yeah. so that the kind of cosmic horror of it yeah it's even worse i i've noticed gnosticism gets thrown around a lot with him and he gets called gnostic and i get i'm familiar with and actually kind of like a version of gnosticism the kind of william blake uh, Jungian it, it's almost a a cooler like you know we're we're matter we're spirit trapped in matter but the goal is to escape you know like yeah Steve McQueen you know I like that kind of version of it but there and when people call McCarthy that there's a whole other you know like maybe things are grimmer like reality is not as we see it in fact is actually a whole lot scarier and worse than we think yeah, and uh, a lot of that speculation, and I haven't read the, there's a whole book on this. Um, I actually can't remember the name of the woman who wrote it on Gnosticism and McCarthy, but I think it's focused on Blood Meridian for the most part. Um, but uh, some of the like more positive side of it uh, that you're referring to uh, is uh, exemplified in, uh, Sutri and um, not everybody takes this book the same way no. um, but I see it as a comedy and I see it as um, even though it has like those ideas of like what you quoted Peter of you know these kind of I mean it's a funny book but there's a lot of death in it and there's a lot of loneliness and isolation um, and despair and so on but I read the ending uh, very very positively so i think it's a comedy in that way um there's a, i don't know if you guys know the hermetics podcast if you're familiar with that at all mm -hmm. 
Um, kind of covers some of the same material that I do on my podcast, you know, um, literature, philosophy, esotericism, stuff like that. But uh, he did a review of Suchery and he actually has like a, he doesn't think it's a, it's a positive ending um, that he thinks it's like, nothing is really solved um, at the end. Um, but I have a different take. I don't know if you guys want to talk about the ending or, yeah, or if you want to wait and talk about some other stuff. I have first. A, I've, this is a guess, Matt. At any point during the ending, did you think um, he died, and it was just like sort of a oh, his go because there is some smelling. <laughs> That's the recurring thing. Matt goes, the person really. I think the person's dead. I was like, I don't know about that because <laughs> there's like it, it. He comes out of a you know typhoid fever like fever dream, and then it's sort of and there's something smelling in his cabin. Yeah, and I was like, think of that, but. You could write a you could write a little paper on it. And then I was like, I don't, I don't know, know if that's too much in my head. I'm like, I wonder if Matt's gonna notice this. If this is Matt's theory, I'm taking Matt's theory. Then I was like, I can't. <laughs> this is well, not my lane. <laughs> I, so I was messaging with Matt about this show, and he was like, I, I'm liking the book, but I'm bracing for the bummer ending. I didn't say anything because I was like, Oh, we're probably gonna have to talk about that ending. <laughs> well, okay, let me do my take. My take. Let me do my take on the ending and we'll get into okay. you guys. All right. So well, at the beginning, one of my favorite quotes kind of is the begin the italicized prologue or whatever you call it. Um, towards the end there, it's the night is quiet, like a camp before battle, the city beset by a thing unknown and will come from the for will come from the forest or sea. The Moringers have walled the pale. The gates are shut below the things inside. And can you guess his shape? Where he's kept or what? what's the counter of his face? He Is he a weaver? Bloody shuttle shot through a time warp? A carter of souls from the world's nap? Or a hunter with hounds? Or do bone horses throw his dead cart through the streets? And does he call his trade to each? Dear friend, he is not to be dwelt upon. For it is by just such wise that he's invited in. And I'm proud of myself for this. At the end, end as he is uh, leave, he's got a, a cardboard suitcase and he's halfway dressed up and he's like go leaving, going somewhere. There is um, off to the right side of the white concrete of the expressway gleamed in the sun where the ramp curved down to empty air and hung truncate with iron rods bristling among the vectors of nowhere. When he looked back, the water boy was gone. An enormous lank hound had come up out of the meadow by the river like a hound from the depths and was sniffing at the spot where Citri had stood. So my theory is at the beginning, we're kind of treated to the entrance to his voluntary purgatory is, I guess, for, there's probably a fancier literary term, but just a way of being. The life he's chosen, a way of being. And then at the end, he's leaving it and the hound the thing that is not to be invited in but he, he does invite in at the end is sniffing where he once stood and it symbolizes okay he's leaving that he's he's a young artsy sensitive person who's gone through this phase and now he's on his way into the world too and so i get in, in my in mind is it's not a bummer ending but yeah. i guess the only question is will he be back because i guess you could relapse and go back there if it's yeah. ultimately just kind of despair and whatever that's a state of being you could sink back into 
But that's just my take, and I noticed yeah. the hound at, at both but ends. He's he's definitely leaving his houseboat. He's leaving Knoxville. He's on to we don't know where. Um, yeah. And you know this book is like um, my my edition is like four hundred seventy pages, and as you go through, as you mentioned before, people have called it a picaresque because there's not really like, there's not really a plot per se. It's very episodic. A lot, it's made of a lot of little, little stories. Um, and, but it has like a cumulative effect, you know? And as we get to the end, cause we spend so much time with such a, a lot of the same thing, you know, when he go, they go back to the bar room and, and the drinking and some of the incidents are, you know they're funny but like that life kind of you get the it makes he makes you feel how that kind of life wears on you after a while and you're like man you're still doing this you know you're still what it, that's the whole thing like what is he doing what is he's not making anything of of his life and i've heard a theory that like uh what happens um what he got what he does is he goes and he becomes a writer and so he, he's actually the narrator of the book um, and it makes sense because uh, that opening, uh, the epilogue addresses like, dear friend, it kind of addresses you. None, none shall walk these streets save you. Um, and so since it's about Suchery, is maybe Suchery talking to himself. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a big theme. <clears throat> you may notice of Suchery being doubled. Like it, it talks, I mean, for the, just to start with, like he's a twin um he's he's had a brother that was stillborn um and every time he seems to like pass like a a window or a mirror or something it talks about like the ant the anti-suchery there's like a scene where he just it's all of that's happening is he's like walking into a store but it it mentions his reflection and how suchery and anti-suchery like came to like shake hands or something like that it's it's kind of funny but it's one of the motifs of the book is the suchery being doubled and when he has his like um his typhoid experience and um his hallucinations um visions he he's tells uh somebody i forget that you know there's there's only one suchery now um so the double the two the doubled suchery has become one suchery and it may be more than that it may be that he has become one with the universe and all beings too um so we'll get into kind of more my take a little bit which is a bit a bit grander um and i'd be maybe way off but uh i think i can defend it um so when he gets out of the hospital um he comes back to the houseboat and he f- there's like a rotting corpse in his bed right yeah. uh and we kind of it kind of goes to um some of his friends who are watching as they're like pulling this body out and they're like is suchry dead and they're like nah suchry ain't dead um yeah we don't know we don't know who this um who this person is but uh suchry uh, apparently does leave and he begins to cast off his things um he talks to a couple of people before he leaves he talks to uh tripping through the dew the uh uh trans at least transvestite I'm, i don't know I, I don't know exactly how we want to categorize uh tripping through the dew but uh um who he calls john um which may be a mis uh, misgendering but i think there's a purpose to it <clears throat> and then he talks to harrogate's sister because harrogate 
has been sent up to the pen for his telephone scheme and then you, know, you start ripping off the telephone company and, uh, they take it personal you know <laughs> um and so he tells uh harrogate's sister uh where he is and uh there's some things going on here and these references are very christian they are like the apostles gathering after the death of jesus you know it's like they don't believe he is dead uh jesus then appears um john was an apostle yeah. he tells um he tells harrogate sister i forget her name um he tells her that harrogate is in petros and she kind of fumbles over the name and makes him repeat it a couple of times and she repeats it um so petros uh, is the rock and it is where we get the name peter um, peter was the apostle that was the fisherman him and his brother um like Sutri. um he was and christ said i will make you a fisher of men and he is also the rock upon which the christian church is built um now so those are some of the associations i have at the end yeah. And so we may have like a some kind of resurrection or ascension, at least symbolically. I mean, at the end of the, I don't know how we can like read this ending in like a literal, literal yeah. way. We seem to be departing from that. Yeah. And, um, but you know, some of these Christian references which happen throughout are kind of being used antithetically. Like obviously, Suchery, you know, Suchery is not. He's not Jesus, <laughs> um, but he's not unchristian either. I mean, he is in this world of petty criminals and drunks and and whores, but uh, there's a absolute kindness to Sutri. He is very generous. Um, he seems to cross lines that other people don't cross. Um, there seem to be, I don't know Tennessee history that that well, I don't know if it was as segregated in the time at the time as say Mississippi or some of these, you know, other famously segregated states, but there does seem to be a distinct group of people that he drinks with one that is white and one that is black. And, you know, his closest friend, Ab Jones is black and um, he treats everybody of every kind of background with equanimity. He is kind to Harrogate when nobody else would be compelled to do that. And he also is the guy who's always going and checking up on the the old generation, the old men, the hermit type guys who are, you know, close to death. So there is that element to Sutri. I think you're on to something too. Uh, that, that yeah, I missed all that the symbolism <laughs> at the end, but that's yeah. Well, and also he's doing all this. He does make a point to be kind to his fellow man. He does it at the expense of his family. Like he's very nice to Harrogate and everybody else in yeah. his world, but he ignores his mother, his father. I mean, his his yeah. wife. He didn't see his son. You know, his son. Yeah, ran out on his family. Obviously, but, yeah. I mean, there is that part in the Bible where Jesus says, "You know, you have to abandon your family to." I just thought of that, but yeah, that so he, to follow him, he, yes, to follow him, and he literally has abandoned his family. See, hmm. I'll be honest; the ending kind of just kicked me out of the story. 
and I was kind of lost a little bit in the ending. And I was like, am I, I don't know if we want to at any point get into this. There, the parts of McCarthy I, I like that I enjoy, I love like the writing and the style and all, but sometimes, and I've kind of struggled with this over the years. Sometimes what stuff I don't get or like I'm struggling with, and I'm trying to like come to grasp with and, and understand, and maybe it deals with vocabulary and I could, I could use, you know, get, point out the dictionary with this book, especially. Oh, nobody sends me to the dictionary like Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> like I started, I started out the book underlining words and looking them up, writing in the margin. And then I kind of like, you give up at a certain point. Cause like, I'm not going to keep doing that and get through this book. So yeah. yeah. Um, But I've kind of come to a happy place where like the parts I love, I love and the parts that I don't like, I'm, I'm fine with. And I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying hearing the actual, like this kind of, you know, the research and the, the symbols. I'm glad we have you on here to kind of enlighten <laughs> me to some of this stuff. Cause I'm, I kind of struggle with them a little bit, especially what I've heard this. And I was listening to your podcast with um, Brad Kelly, art of darkness, talking about Cormac yeah. McCarthy. Is, with this, is this, a, you guys, his middle period, is that right? Or is this, cause he has different, like his mm-hmm. language sort of changes. Like, the road that doesn't have the sort of difficult language that this has. Um, I don't know if the newer books have that sort of the, the kind of challenging vocabulary. Um, the road any- has simpler language, but it still has, it still has some stuff like this too. I don't know. I'm going to have to, I'll have to reread that. And I had, like I said, I haven't read the um, border trilogy, which he writes in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, so he starts writing in the early sixties um he published three novels prior to this one and this came out in 1979 um but the way i think about periodizing mccarthy is is um up to this point he's writing about the south where he comes from and then after this he moves west and starts writing about the west now he may uh, and of course obviously blood meridian's a western um the border trilogy i i believe are kind of westerns western-esque at least yeah um he may like he may start considering the road as starting like kind of a third period that's i don't know concerned with other types of things but uh and i and i recently read his two new novels um which are i mean it has a lot of his you know cormacian thematics in it but like genre wise they're they're really different um and not to get sidetracked into those, but I liked them. Uh, I don't rank them among his best that I've read, but they're very, they're still very interesting. And I'm like really pleased that he's like taking artistic chances at his advanced age and the stage of his career. And he totally is. So. Sorry. I got us off the ending partly because I did struggle to understand what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, like from, from where, like from when he starts getting sick. Yeah. I would say the fever dream and on, and actually yeah. I would say just in general, the second half of the book I enjoyed more than the first half. And I don't, I don't exactly know why um, it had maybe a little bit more narrative clarity. And that, mm-hmm. that's not really why you read Cormac McCarthy, but um, yeah. Well, I will say like some of the, the stuff in the second half um, are more like sustained stories, like the whole episode with Reese and the muscle yeah. stuff. Um, that's like a very sustained section of the book. Yeah. Um, 
and it doesn't take up uh, very much uh, page space in the book, but I think his his affair with the prostitute Joyce is a very compelling little um, bit in its own, and I found myself like quite moved by it because um, he found somebody that seemed to give him like unconditional love in a way like to just kind of explain it like he meets this woman who's set up as a hustler is what she said but we won't hustle you and she doesn't hustle him she like she continues like um going off and like whoring in other cities but she like buys him clothes sets him up in a room he's not on the houseboat and she like they seem to be genuinely like in love without condition and when that happens you're like oh this is going to end bad exactly. because it's being set up it's being set up too good he almost he almost seems too happy good like he seems like yeah oh, and he's like he has money he has clothes he can uh, yeah get part of him doesn't it's it's starting to become a weird version of everything he's rejecting right and you notice he pushes her away at the very end too yeah yeah i mean so it kind of collapses like suddenly and they have like a fight. We don't, we're not told what it is about. Cause it doesn't, in a way it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And she, they're both drunk. Um, and that's part of the problem. Um, and ne yeah, never have like a drunk fight with your yeah. significant other bad idea. Um, and they're in the car and she was like, um, you know, he's, she's like freaking out and, and he's, just like calling her he's reacting and just being like calling her name saying she's crazy and she tells him like i can't remember what she says exactly but what uh, she wants him, him to comfort her and he he won't do it like in fairness to him she's like really acting out she like kicks out the windshield of his car and stuff but uh and then she starts taking out the money that she's been earning starts tearing it up and throwing it out the window and then he swir he like takes the car, swerves it into a gas station, parks it, and then he walks away. And that's the end of that episode. Yeah. So there's like a stubbornness to Sutri, you know, he's not gonna take as soon as things go like not the way that he wants them to be, he's gone. So no. No. He'll he'll walk away from things. That was actually part of kind of what made me think this is that that sound you hear is Matt's son. <laughs> I was I'm actually surprised you haven't heard my son yet. He's been napping and I was wondering if he was gonna wake up. Uh yeah, we usually don't record uh at this time, so Matt's we might he might show an appearance here. Okay. <laughs> no problem. Nice and tortilla. Um, I kind of like the going to the end either. Hearing you guys talk, I sort of, I, I don't know if I have the positive aspect of it at the end, because I don't know leaving Knoxville where he's going. I kind of like the theory of him becoming a writer, and this is like his, his story in, in a way. He's going to New Mexico to write Blood Meridian. Yeah. Yeah, there you uh, go. He, he, he got some some grant money. Um, yeah, it, it's, he's, there's so much that's not said that you can kind of, you're, asked to sort of fill in the backstory with, I guess, and you can kind of come up with different, like his family, like the death of his son is obviously a major, like it's a, it's a kind of a, it's a brief scene in the book. It doesn't, it's not like a very long, um, but that has to sort of haunt him. And then his relationships, they're going forward, but 
Um, he brings it up later. Like it, it, you can tell it bothers him. I think yeah. it's, it's mentioned. Well, well I wonder how much of this is he like he's rejecting the world he comes from because he's afraid of loss. Yeah. But he finds he finds just as much loss and problem. Oh, and it starts piling. Yeah. It starts piling up at the end. You know, Callahan gets shot in the face for stealing coins at a bar. You know, yeah. uh, and people start dying all around him, and he he's, you know, he's he's sick of the the world of death. It seems to be one of the main things that's that's bothering him. You know, which would uh, almost about life. If, if you wanted to say he's older that you can make him like a war vet and he's tired of maybe coming back from the war he's kind of rejected yeah and might be a reading in that but that's you know yeah and that's why i keep wondering about how old he is because i could also see i could also see him i wouldn't like see him as like middle-aged or above 40 but possibly in his 30s um He's got to be young enough for women like Joyce and Wanda to be yeah. attractive. So yeah. 35 right. tops. Yeah. You know, like I, my thing. Yeah. Speaking of, I want to ask, did I miss something? It's a, it's a minor thing, but I, when he and Reese go to town to try to sell the pearls and they go to the first appraiser guy and the appraiser says they're worthless and you know there's some confusion and they're not gonna have enough money to go eat and do whatever in town and Sutri gets kind of prickly and upset and leaves but then he wanders by and he sees reese eating a really nice meal in a restaurant and reese kind of startles to see him yeah and reese says oh i was able to sell him somewhere else like he actually was able to sell him it but is he telling the truth? Is he shifted? Did I miss where he actually got the money from? Or is I, it? It's another one of these elliptical moments. We don't know what happens. And either he found like some idiot to pawn them off onto, or he had some other source of money. Cause suddenly they're some... able to like eat well and go to the whorehouse, you know, <laughs> he had so. some tucked away and he was lying to Sutri about. Yeah. Okay. It, it correct me if I'm wrong that like when the rock face falls, that kills like yes daughter so yes that would add to sort of the like the, a lot of people are dying <laughs> yeah and like, again this is another thing like when that happens Setri leaves yeah immediately Lost. you know yep. he's gone um so and, yeah i mean and maybe the ending is more um amb- ambivalent or ambiguous because it seems like he's uh you know he's getting uh, he's getting out. He's free. He's like doing something with his life, or maybe even like I've I've suggested that some kind of resurrection or ascension has actually happened. But um, the hounds of death are still there, though, right? They like, were sniffing where he was. Uh huh. Yeah. So I don't. And maybe he's walking mm. away. Yeah. Towards, you know, the he's leaving purgatory, having experienced, you know. He's dying to his old self and walking. Yeah, and some people think that like he just dies, and that's like only a spirit at the end because you'll notice like uh, so what happens is he's he's like leaving, and a car shows up or a truck to give him a ride, but he hasn't like put his thumb out to hitchhike. Okay. It's just there. It just shows up, yeah. 
And uh, another like possible reference here too is Emily Dickinson's "Because I Could Not Stop for Death." He kindly stopped for me, um, and people are like, "Okay, this is like the horseman and that." You know, it's like the yeah. carriage of death ready to take take his soul away. You know. But you know, there are earlier scenes where he tries to hitchhike and people drive on by. Yeah, yeah. There's mm -hmm. probably something in the, the the truck stopping for him when he didn't put his thumb out. I have yeah. a question. Rereading McCarthy. How much are you catching up, like on the second reread, or if you've done more than two or three or whatever? I, it feels like there's a it's a fertile ground for like a, a something. Ton. Okay, yeah. So this is my second read, and uh, the first one was on audiobook, and uh, yeah, I picked up a lot more this time around, and I'm sure I think I've got another reread of this at least in me but i got to my, so my project right now is to finish the mccarthy books that i haven't read and there's a couple that i gotta reread um the road and child of god after this um i'm gonna take a little, little bit of a break because uh yeah i don't want to get like burned out but yeah that's kind of the that's kind of the project nice very good kind of put me in the mood to do blood meridian and take a go at the border trilogy yeah yeah i reading this i i kind of mentioned that it so many so much great language but it does a kind of like it wears on me a little bit in like a, probably a positive sense it gets my brain activated but i don't know if i could keep like mccarthy one after the other I, I need oh yeah um, i know i know the border trilogy has a lot of passages like that too and that's that's another reason why i'll like probably take a little bit of break in between yeah i mean i could go on and read the road after this but i wouldn't want to start right in after suchery on all the pretty horses or blood meridian yeah. they're too overwhelming uh, uh these books um maybe some people could do that but yeah i, I kind of need a, pa a little like palate cleanser in between i wanted to ask you mccarthy's become this like universal author what i mean is like when his newest books and might be his last books come out. It's, you know, everyone's reviewing them, uh, mostly positive from what I, but he seems like not the most accessible and easy author. So him be, being this, like, it's almost a, 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 like an unlikely, unlikely story of him being this, like, I don't know, praised and loved and, and read. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like how he, he sort of, why I gather changes with all the pretty horses and then going mm -hmm. forward, he kind of has success and it's, it's kind of interesting because he doesn't, he doesn't make it easy. <laughs> it's not, it's kind of strange. Uh, yeah. And I, I, any thoughts on that kind of, well, like how he became like a, the kind yeah, of phenomenon like, yeah, being it, as it, difficult it, as he is. Um, he's not, e he's not easy. I would say. No, but I think he's, because he's, I, I would give a couple reasons one is that he's writing about things that matter to us as a culture um and you know everybody's like playing scenarios of the road in their head you know it feels like yeah. we might be headed in that direction sometimes yeah. you know um and uh you know harold bloom said he he didn't really like edgar Allan poe but he thought poe was kind of an inevitable writer because he dreamt universal dreams or universal nightmares or something like that and i think mccarthy has that quality too um but i will also say yeah he's a difficult writer but i, I wouldn't he can also be really entertaining like i think 
Uh, no Country for Old Men is a, it's a straight page turner of a like noir thriller. Yeah. Um, and there are scenes in Sutri that are just some of the funniest, uh, you know, like yarns that I've that I've ever come across. Um, this definitely, um, like you start out with that prologue and some of the the first few pages of uh, once it gets into Sutri's story and there's kind of a sinking feeling of is is all of this 500 page novel going to be like this <laughs> i felt that i was like uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it but it isn't it kind of settles yeah. into uh, other modes and the, a lot of the the, the conversation the like barroom conversations and the stories that people tell each other are very funny and very engaging and it, uh, they're they're very earthy and um mccarthy has a has an ear for um dialogue of, of the common man and he he gives him his poetry you know um the good southern writers really do that i think um there's something about the way people speak in the south uh i don't know it's like a, at every level you've got like the the judge at the end and and the, that that list that i read was from when he has this hallucination when he's like dying he gets like judged by this judge and it's like you can hear the like high-flown southern judge in that you know um so there's this like tradition of high rhetoric but also a very creative use of, of language on the level of like slang and uh just kind of like yokel speech and everybody has their own little interesting way of phrasing things and mccarthy has an uncanny ear for that kind of thing i i'm glad you brought up like the story aspect of it like the story of leonard and like his father's dead and he keeps him alive weird leonard yeah <laughs> <laughs> like it's just like, it's like weekend and birdies just broke out in this book really? <laughs> it's yeah. like uh I, those aspects of the novel are like surprising and kind of show off his talents as a writer because I think when people maybe well, I don't, like a writer wants to try to write like McCarthy, they just write from the those first pages, like those first twenty pages, let's say, or that first five pages. They don't do the other stuff, the humor or the um, kind of young, like yeah, like in, interesting episodes of life. Um, mm -hmm. it, may, it probably gets missed when you try to copy McCarthy. Yeah. Um, you know what's interesting? I kind of I brought this up with you all this when we were kind of messaging, but there's an interesting kind of Charles Portis Cormac McCarthy connection. Their their writing styles are are dissimilar, and in fact, a blurb on my copy of Dog of the South is Roy Blunt Jr. saying mm. Charles Portis could be Cormac McCarthy, but he'd rather be funny. Which snark aside, I think there is something to, to Portis's style in the world he delves into. Like I think Portis could do uh, just the the comedy light version of Sutri of a guy along the river. Um, it's very southern. Portis had an ear for the way people talk, and he kind of just stripped the the flowery prose out and kind of presented the the humorous but i guess all that's a way of saying i'm, I'm heavily recommending uh portis to you oh totally yeah i i like i said i i've been meaning to read true grit forever and i'll yeah. probably check out dog of the south at some yeah. point yeah i was reminded of it 
Matt, see if you agree with me here. And I don't know if you read this, Aldous. Uh, Sometimes a Great Notion by Ken, Ken Kesey, which you read last year. Like just I, the, I have not read that one. I, I, I do like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but I haven't got to that one. I would say Sometimes a Great Notion is much better and strong, but it's like it's just there's so much in it. And he's putting so much. It's a, kind of an amazing, like almost feat. You read a book where you're like, wow, mm-hmm. this took a lot of effort just to continue this type of writing for it's like 700 pages i want to say yeah it's another river novel yeah Mm. like family and stuff like that that's kind of what i was reminded of Mm. rose why is not the tire there's flights there's there's similar lyrical bursts and fancy and it keeps coming back to her yeah yeah i feel like if he wasn't you know locked up in the nut house randall p mcmurphy would probably fit right in in the world of suchry yeah 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 (laughs) um any other anybody else have any thoughts or theories or oh i've got theories i'll drop this on you guys that's like a little a little more wild um and then and we can just kind of leave it at that but uh you know in addition to the 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 christian symbolism there's a it's odd to find some ideas associated with the new age in cormac mccarthy but but they're there in this and um it's i in that Brad Kelly interview, we we talked about the tarot in Blood Meridian, and we have some astrology in uh, Suchri. Um, of course, uh, Suchri is a fisherman, and the he uses the word Pisces. He calls him Piscean, and that that is used a couple of times. Uh, one comes up later in the book uh, near the that very. Uh, and when, as I've said, that he undergoes some kind of transformation, whether it's a literal death or a symbolic death, what happens after when he decides that he's leaving is he encounters a boy with golden hair and blue eyes giving water to um, some construction workers and he gives some water to Sutri and he calls him a water bearer. Well, the water bearer is the sign of Aquarius and the age of Aquarius is what is supposed to follow the age of Pisces. Now, astrologers disagree uh, as to when this begins. It could be that we're in Aquarius already. It could not, it could be that uh, it's not going to happen until next century. And uh, Rudolf Steiner, always an independent thinker projects it way into the future after the year 3000 or something. Um, but astrologically that's that's what happened that's uh yeah it's supposed to be an age of transformation into you know higher consciousness more communication uh many many things i myself although i think i do buy into this to a certain degree i don't believe the utopian idea of it as um you know a perfect world i don't think that's how these things work but i definitely think uh it will it indicates that Suchri's transformation is not for Suchri alone, but it's something that uh, happens to everybody. But there's a yeah, there's an, there's something going on with the astrological ages in this book too. That yeah, that's interesting. I do yeah, you know, I remember that part with the yeah the kid carrying water and. Hmm. I did a little research on Knoxville. Do you guys want to know some fun facts about Knoxville? <laughs> I <did> Definitely. Not. <laughs> so this book comes out in 1979 because he spends, you know, like, like you said, quite a while working on it. They they host the World's Fair in 1982 because the World's Fairs have kind of petered out 
as as a thing, but Knoxville, Tennessee holds it. Uh, it's six months long. It puts the government in huge debt. I think they make it makes it, the kind of article doesn't make entire a lot of sense. They say they make fifty seven dollars from a six month event, and it puts the government in forty six million dollars of debt. They have to pay <laughs> off until two thousand seven. Wow. Um, the other thing is, uh, what was it? Pepsi introduces some new flavors that you can try and you can vote on. And Cherry Pepsi comes out of the, the Knoxville World's Fair. Uh, and then you can interact with the first touchscreen computer at the 1982. Oh, okay. So there there's All right. I thought they probably had to do some rehabilitation. It, it is the city. source of the <laughs> – After the book came out. It is the source of the age of Aquarius. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know something about Knoxville. There is a Sutri's Tavern. Oh, really? In Knoxville, based on some inter- the interest in this book, so um, yeah, there's no real the the University of Tennessee is not. I might have missed it, but there's no real like references to it. If, am I mistaken? Or I don't think so? And it's it's kind of interesting that he went there for a little bit before he went to the Army Air Force after Tennessee. I think. I think it was in the Air Force. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my little I'm like yeah little Knoxville history for you guys. Neat. I got a random factoid. Did you know this started out as a short story called Harrogate and the Flitter Mouses? Really? Oh, so that, that was the first thing that he wrote? So that, that, I, some, and he tried to get it published, yeah. I think, in Harper's, and they rejected it, but that the the or the seed of such reasons. Okay, yeah. I thought that was a great title. He's a great It is. Writer. I love the... For people who don't know, those are bats. <laughs> but I love the the, the flitter mouse. Yeah, Harrogate. I wonder if this little short story of Harrogate trying to sell is for the listener. There's a, a the Knoxville in the in such of the book. The Knoxville city is trying to get rid of rabid bats, so they'll pay you what, a dollar for every bat you bring in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, our budding entrepreneur Gene Harrogate finds a way to, to poison and kill like what 50 bats and he puts them all in a bag and takes them to the hospital thinking he's going to be a rich man <laughs> he ends up giving him like well like a couple of bucks just to tell him how he did it yeah yeah they're like, like you obviously <laughs> didn't collect 50 rabbit bats we found poison now can you tell me how yeah and he's proud of it though like he's he's proud of the like two bucks that he earned doing that <laughs> yeah yeah he we, was so confident he was going to make like 50 bucks. Like, we do this thing at the end of the year, like our book Oscars, and we have different categories. And like, yeah. it was like best secondary character or best character. Gene Harrigan has got to be, that's got to be yeah. Yeah, one one that we remember as far as just yeah, supporting, supporting character. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Would yeah. you recruit him for your baseball team is the other question. <laughs> He's a, like a bat boy. <laughs> yeah you know that boy for sure play yeah i've let him run concessions see yeah. like what we probably get shut down by the health department uh, are but... you trust him with the money no no <laughs> trust really. with food. yeah <laughs> we owe money from the concessions oh that's great <laughs> but uh Wait, is, so one more is this at all filmable do you think um any book is filmable I would be very skeptical if someone would make a really good movie out of it. I suggested a couple of people on a couple of filmmakers on Twitter. Um, sorry, 
on Twitter. I suggested this. I didn't suggest any filmmakers on Twitter. Um, <laughs> um, Paul Schrader for kind of the existential, you know, stuff. Um, and um, what was the other one I said? Um, but anyway, subsequently, I've considered people for different aspects. Um, and he's not a film guy; he's a TV guy. But David Milch, you know, you know David yeah. Milch, yeah. who created Deadwood, and Deadwood is like the closest thing that I can think of in terms of like all the characters that exist and like how rich the language is in that show and how that show gives like even the most like low down, you know, drunk, you know, kind of worthless character their own kind of poetry of speech and i think mccarthy does that there and i'd be really i'd be interested to see that now kind of a more like oddball take on it i think only certain aspects of the book he would ca capture and maybe the like the for the eccentricity of some of the characters and for the weirdness of the like hallucinatory scenes david lynch hmm. yeah I see this more as a TV series. Phil, Could be. I, think, I think it needs more time to breathe in a way, in a way like more. Yeah, you can make it episodic and yeah. I mean, Gene is. Mini, mini series, maybe. Or maybe like, yeah, maybe like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Go the route of the British. Just like six episodes. But yeah, we're not doing 20 episodes. Because I think with a movie, you would cut out. It feels like you need time to like breathe. What, like with this book just to kind of get your bearings with it and, and kind of rushing a movie in two hours maybe does a disservice to it because it, it has its own pace and i always feel like mccarthy is writing it like his writing I, I was gonna ask this question sometimes you you don't know when this book is taking place do you get do you guys get that sound? oh yeah like oh yeah this could be two thousand years ago <laughs> right no, now that's all I right. get that. There's a weird feeling in McCarthy with these characters that it's like some of the characters that he really likes, like these hermit type guys who live on the outskirts. These are like these guys could be living in the Middle Ages, yeah. you know. Um, if you haven't read um, Outer Dark, an earlier book of his, Outer Dark really feels like out of time. Okay. Like it has some of the tropes of Southern fiction, but then there's this like really odd feeling that you're like traveling back in time to yeah the, like the middle ages or or the ancient world or something it's full of these like characters wandering like an abyssal landscape um yeah it's a it's a very like his, some of his earlier books are like a really creepy child of god is as well so yeah or it's so far in the future that society and humanity have gone back Yes, that too. Yeah, because yeah, I don't feel 1950s. <laughs> I think that's on purpose. Yeah. Matt, any final thoughts or Aldous? Any final thoughts on this book? Or I'm glad we read. It. I'm glad, and I'm glad you were here to help us. Yeah, because yeah. I, I'll be honest. I yeah. Well, I, I suggested it to Matt. I heard you guys talking that you might do it. And I was like, you got it. I I don't think I was insistent, but I said, if you want, I... I yeah. you know, if we ever I, do I Blood was Meridian... I was planning a reread, so... If we ever do Blood Meridian, I would like to have you back on. Yeah, cool. Well, I, and 
Go ahead, Matt. Uh, well, I was going to say the podcast you did on Blood Meridian is one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to. That was, yeah, a, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, I really appreciate that. That was, that was a very popular episode, as you might imagine. People are really interested in that. So, yeah. No, it's great. It's a great breakdown of the book and all the, made me want to read Spangler. Uh, it, yeah. Yeah. That's his more like Spanglerian book. Although he's, uh, comes up again in uh, Stella Maris because Spangler has like this chapter on mathematics that's really interesting. And Spangler actually doesn't believe there's a universal mathematics. He thinks that each culture makes its own mathematics that is only true from within that culture. So McCarthy doesn't endorse that idea, but he like actually takes it seriously and th- th- through the character. But yeah. Has McCarthy sort of like shifted towards more science based? Well, he's been spending time with scientists. He's been like at the Santa Fe Institute, which is like, I don't know exactly what they do, but uh, I think they're they're sort of like exploring the idea of complexity and it's sort of like a cross-disciplinary thing where there's mostly scientists in a bunch of different fields and then they have one, you know, literary guy and that's that's Cormac (laughs) McCarthy. And you see a lot of, like there's interviews with him and he doesn't talk about literature at all. Like he's not interested in talking about literature. He'll talk about anything about that. He'll talk about architecture. He'll talk about physics. He just doesn't really want to talk about his books that much. <laughs> so, like I said, random... he's, not, he's not explaining his books. I saw some random thing. I was on Twitter, but it was like an excerpt from an interview. And I guess James Franco did what's widely considered to be a pretty bad version of Child of God, I believe, like a movie version. Yeah, I remember that. And there was an interview, and Franco was telling about the only time he really interacted with Cormac McCarthy and he asked him like Cormac why do you you know why'd you make such an unlikable character or some other like cliched question like that and McCarthy supposedly said I don't know James probably some dumbass reason (laughs) (laughs) I love that (laughs) yeah it is crazy you mentioned he went on Oprah yeah. <laughs> it's the weirdest guy that. to go on hope in retrospect. Yeah. 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 That's funny. Um, well, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. we're, we're sometimes not always the most serious guys on here. We, we appreciate serious literature, but sometimes, you know, we talk about book authors and creating baseball teams and authors. So, Alice, I'm glad you came on and yeah. engaged I, and our. I, I got to say, yeah, I love, love to do Blood Meridian talk, but I read like and stuff like that too so you know consider me f- for whatever you kind of feel like having me on for i oh, mean yeah. i can find i can find symbols in anything man uh, <laughs> let's do it let's do it we'll i was trying my best i was like I, I, but my best thing was my like united states in the 1950s and how this book is you know i also came up with the theory that this is the age of like you know the atomic bomb and that's not people were struggling to yeah, come to grips with that so I, I have no idea where that fits in this book but that's yeah. <laughs> so uh, Matt any any final thoughts no if you're driving along the road and you see some college kid reading on his porch shine your flashlight on him <laughs> maybe you'll freak him out a little bit yeah and go read and go listen to the forest of symbols De- definitely fun. yes thank you I started on that and uh, it kind of led me over to Art of Darkness we've done episodes with so uh, a lot of good podcasts uh, 
content out there for you. So yeah. we, hope, we hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, we will be back next week. <laughs>